0: All right, well, one of, the, one of the things I love about fall, it's officially fall now, right? Like, is it yesterday was the first day of fall? Monday. Tomorrow? Monday? I don't know. Fall's happening, like, right now. Like, somewhere right in now, fall's... We have no idea when the first day of fall is. But the thing I love about fall is football. I love football. And, and most people fall into two categories. You're either, like, NFL kind of football or college football, um or both, yeah, or both, high school. high school, or high school, yeah, why did I leave out high school? I apologize for that, Kobe, like, all you high school football players, like, um, high school, college, or NFL, um, and, uh, but, but there's nothing like Saturday afternoon college football, I mean, like, I don't know if you watched any football yesterday, but we did discover some teams are not near as good as we thought they were going to be, <laughs> not near as good as we expected and anticipated that they should be by this point in time. But uh, for those of you who are avid college football fans um, who maybe follow ESPN, you might be familiar with this story. You guys know this story? For those of you who don't know this story, let me tell you this story. So ESPN, big football, you know, sports giant, uh, every Saturday they have this thing called ESPN College Game Day, and they go around uh, to different colleges throughout the, the season, and they set up their, their set, and they broadcast live from you know, one of the signature games of the weekend. And this took place last Saturday, uh, ESPN College Game Day set up their set uh, in Iowa, because it was the big game between the University of Iowa and Iowa State, which is a big rivalry. So they set up you know on the campus there. And uh, the guy on the left, he's one of the ESPN broadcasters, and they're doing their their show, and there was this guy holding up a sign. His name is Carson King. He's 24 years old, he's an Iowa State fan. He went to Iowa State and it's the big game. So he decided, I'm gonna go super early and try to get on TV. Like he he got there like at 5:30 in the morning. The game wasn't till Saturday afternoon. He even like tweeted his mom, or not tweeted, but probably texted his mom, said Mom, I'm gonna go early, I'm gonna hold up a sign. Uh, and the sign's going to read, "Bushlight Supply needs replenishing. And then he gives his Venmo number, like so if people want to donate to his cause. And his mom's like, great, this is like such a proud, <laughs> such a proud mom. She said, proud mom moment, you know, oh man. And uh, so he did, and he got up front, because he got there at 5.30 in the morning, and he held up his sign, and he got on TV, and um, this, this phenomenon started to happen. As he's holding up his sign, his, his phone starts vibrating and going off, and he starts looking at his Vemno account updates, and, and people from all over the country started giving him money to replenish his bush light supply, Okay. <laughs> All of a sudden, he looked and he shows his friends like, "I got four hundred dollars already. Then I got six hundred dollars, and then it just started mushrooming, mushrooming, and, and snowballing. And uh, pretty soon, uh, like he he had big figures in his Vemno account, um, like 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 thirty, forty thousand dollars. It's a lot of bush beer, and so so he decided like I. I I can't keep this. I can't spend it all on beer. So he decided that that he tweeted this. He's going to donate all the money that he gets minus the amount for one case of beer, he's going to donate all of it to the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital, which, if you know the tradition, is a children's hospital built right near the football field at the University of Iowa. It was, it was finished in 2017, and I love this. The University of Iowa fans began a tradition in 2018 that at the end of the first quarter, everyone in the stadium turns towards the children's hospital and waves to the kids, And the kids are all up in their rooms looking down ready for this big wave. And there's like a press box viewing area on the top of the hospital where families can go and watch. And it's become this cool tradition in in college football. So, you know, obviously Carson King's aware of this tradition. He's aware of this children's hospital at his rival's, you know, university. And he decides he's going to donate all the money received to them. And then... Bush Beer, whoever, like, I don't know, whoever, like, brews Bush Beer, like, decides, like, hey, we're going to get in on this. And so they tweet, we're going to match everything that's given. And then Vemno doesn't want to be, you know, they want their name out there, too. So they said, we're going to match everything that's given. And I looked yesterday, just like, where's this thing at? And according to, like, what I found, his Vemno account is up to $270,000, which when you add the two matching gifts, yeah. When you get the two matching gifts, it's, it's over $800,000 now going to the children's hospital, all from this. Why am I sharing this with you? Because at first, like, you're not sure, Like, is this a good story? Is this a story we should really highlight and talk about in a church gathering? Should we be highlighting this guy? He's a 20-something-year-old you know, who, who's taken a break from school, who decided that as a joke, he's going to nationally solicit beer money. But gosh darn it, in the end, you kind of admire the guy, don't you? You kind, of, you kind of admire at least what he chose to do. He's kind of a creative entrepreneur. You admire him especially when he decides to invest his newfound wealth for the benefit of others. Might have been the wrong motivation, but it ended up with the right results. I want you to just remember the feel of this story as we read today's scripture. Um, we started a series a couple weeks ago called Devoted to the Word of God, born out of Acts 2.42, when it says the, the apostles, the, the early church, were devoted to, to four specific things, one of them being the apostles' teaching. The Word of God. And so we just kind of paused right there in that verse. Like, are we devoted to the Word of God? Let's make sure we as a people are devoted and oriented around the Word of God. We even started a, a Victory Point Bible reading plan. And if uh, you want to participate in this, which I really encourage you to participate in, you can grab the reading plan, you know, kind of checkbox from the welcome table. You can find this on our website, just go to victorypoint.org, scroll down, you can see the day's readings, you can find this on our Facebook page. But I just really invite you to, to follow along, like what would it be like if an entire church decided to orient themselves around the same scriptures every day? How could that season our daily lives together? And that's what we're doing, and I encourage you to stick with it. You know, for some of you, this might be a new thing. Others, you might already have a Bible reading plan. It's really lightweight. You can add this to it. It's getting you into the Old Testament, you know, regularly. It's getting you into the book of Psalms regularly. Um, you know, it might be kind of weird, like reading Jeremiah right now and things like that. But you got to understand, like, he, he's, he's prophesying at a time when Israel's in exile. And so it's, it's kind of a downer time in the life of Israel. So just persevere and push through. Um, Today we're going to dive into what we read on Thursday, if you're following the reading plan. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, turn to Luke 16, Luke chapter 16, and I'll just be straight up honest with you, after, like I'm reading ahead in order to determine what to preach on, Um, after choosing Luke 16 as, I think that's that's the passage I want to teach on, There was more than one time this week when I second-guessed everything, like, why did I choose this passage? I don't understand how to teach this passage, I'm not sure what Jesus is trying to say in this passage, but I think in some ways this passage has chosen me, so I'm sticking with it, and we're going to dive into Luke 16. Um, Before we do that, during this series, we're just kind of practicing this reminder of what's true about this book. Because it's not just a book, it's the living, breathing Word of God. So would you join me in unison by declaring what's true? Hold up your Bible, your Bible app, your hand, whatever, and repeat with me, please. This is my Bible. It is the Word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit. I am what it says I am. And I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Devil, I'm armed and should be considered dangerous. All right, Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read it from my Bible. Pete's going to advance it along on the screen if you want to follow along there. And I just, I encourage you to really lean in and listen. Because I'm going to ask you a question after I read it. Like, what do you think Jesus is teaching through this? So this, I'm going to read the first nine verses of Luke chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples... There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and he asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job, and I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here... People will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, How much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended. The dishonest manager, because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. If someone at your school, your neighborhood, your workplace came up to you and said, hey, I just read the first nine verses of Luke 16. What does it mean? What would you reply? Turn to the person next to you and just take a second and say, here's what I think I would say, or I have no idea. Like just what would you say to that person right now? Just turn and and just share that with someone next to you. Do we have all the answers represented in this room? It's crystal clear. It's crystal clear, isn't it? I've been wrestling with this passage all week. I've been inviting people into conversations. We as a staff sit down, you know, regularly throughout the week and we read the scriptures and we pray. I've shared it with them, like, what do you guys think? And wrote down answers. Like, um, Jesus is telling a parable. He's telling a parable into... This might be oversimplification, but a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus is teaching his disciples specifically in this passage. What's he teaching? What is the heavenly meaning that Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples? Because at first glance, when you just give it a, a, an initial read, it sure seems like Jesus is presenting to us someone to imitate whose life seems to be the opposite of, of everything Jesus has taught. This guy kind of, he sounds like a shyster, sort of conniving, maybe self-centered, obviously loose with someone else's wealth. He seems more concerned about his own skin than he does the people around him. He, he kind of comes across as, you know, we don't use this word a like, as a scoundrel. You know, is, is that really who Jesus is offering to us as someone to emulate? Is that really the example he's trying to give us? Like, is he saying, be like this guy? Like, is he affirming dishonesty here? Is he suggesting we buy friends? Is that the point of this parable to to use what we have to to purchase friendships? It's a really strange story. It's a really strange story. It's even uncomfortable in some ways. The exact meaning of this parable, I'll just be honest, as I've done some research, has stumped Bible commentators and biblical thinkers for centuries. People have been offering all kinds of opinions as to what they think Jesus is saying. You know, there's lots of different interpretations, which is kind of cool, which you kind of love about the Word of God. In some ways, like, it's never... You never get there. It's this alive, breathing book. It has layers and textures, and it hits you in different ways at different seasons of your life as the Holy Spirit intersects your life with, with the Word of God. That's the beauty of it. So let's try, to, let's, let's try to figure it out, though, as best we can today for our lives. So you have the, the scene, the story opens up with a wealthy man, a rich man, who discovers that he's being cheated by the manager of his household. Or at least the manager is accused of that. He, it says he's accused of wasting his master's possessions. Now the manager in the Greek here is interestingly, um, is oikonomos. Oikonomos, from, from the word oikos. You know, which we know it means ex- extended family or household. So the manager is the oikonomos. And, and in ancient Palestine, what we need to understand is the social dynamics were a little different than what we're used to today. And in ancient Palestine, there was this complex relationship between the land owner, the land workers, and the merchants of the day. And so the oikonomos, or the steward, translate or manager in this story, he, the, that person would be sort of the middleman. The, the, the manager or the steward was the middleman between the wealthy landowner and the land workers and the merchants of the tenants. You know, so he would, he would oversee like sort of the exchange of goods and services, the buying and the selling of, of resources and commodities, you know, things like grain and olive oil and crops. He would be the one to collect the, the rent, you know, um, or from the sharecroppers and things like that. The manager or the steward, had great responsibility and great authority to act on behalf of the owner. And it wasn't uncommon. And matter of fact, I've read it was even expected even that this manager or steward would would participate in the practice of skimming a little bit or or charging a commission or, or taking a little for himself. You know, that, that's what tax collectors did in Jesus' day. Um reminds us of the story of Zacchaeus and things like that. I mean, but it wasn't uncommon and it was even expected that they would charge a little extra commission. You know, skim a little bit off the top. As long as the master's profits were still coming in, no problem. All is good. Well, suddenly, something isn't good. Whatever it is, something isn't good. The manager is accused. He's accused of squandering his master's riches. Now that word squandering is actually the same idea, the same word that you have in the parable right before this one. The parable of the lost son or the lost sons. The parable of the prodigal son. Remember how, Remember when we read that story how, how he went and squandered his father's wealth? Well, that's the same idea you get in this parable, that this man is accused of squandering his master's riches. So the master calls the manager into account, says, explain yourself. What's this I hear? I want to see the books. I want to see the accounting of everything. I'm firing you. You know, verse three, if you caught that, it says, the manager said to himself, which in the gospel of Luke, just as a side note, is never good. If anyone's talking to themselves in the Gospel of Luke, it's never a good thing. It's never a good situation. He's talking to himself. He begins talking to himself and he says, What am I going to do? What am I going to do? He's about to lose his livelihood. He's about to lose his identity. There's this sense of urgency that comes over him. Time is suddenly short. There's this sense of desperation that comes over him. I, I don't know. I can't do manual labor. I'm not physically fit or I'm too old. I don't know what the reason, I, I can't do you know, physical labor. I'm too ashamed to beg, what am I going to do? And then, like talking to himself again, I know, I got it. I know what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. When I'm out of a job, this is what I'm going to do so that when I'm out of a job, out of a job I will be accept, accepted and welcomed into people's homes, which I think is interesting. So he calls his master's debtors in. And he sort of scrubs the books, sort of rewrites the invoices or the books. He reduces their debts and rewrites their bills. Now there's lots of, again, there's lots of interpretations and theories on this passage. Like, you know, some people suggest, well, maybe he's cutting out his commission. You know, he's reducing it by his commission. Others might, you know, um, wonder if, if maybe the master was... You know, charging interest, which biblically wasn't you know allowed in in Jewish law, they found their ways around it, Um, and so maybe he's taken off the interest. Whatever whatever the reason, he decides this is what he's going to do. I'm going to call in those that owe my master, and I'm going to reduce their debts. Um, So uh, it's almost like he um, he he brings in the the olive oil guy, like olive oil guy. how How much is your bill? Cut it in half. Wheat guy, how much is your bill? You know, why don't you cut that by a fifth? And you guys, remember me. Remember me later. Remember me later when I'm out of a job. Remember my generosity to you. Remember like my my lavish, and again, there's that word in, in the original Greek, that remember my prodigal, lavished generosity upon you. On the surface, on the surface, it does appear like he's buying friends. Doesn't it? I mean, that's, why, that's why I decided to title this message, Buying Friends. It, it seems like he, he's buying friends. He's saving himself, which is true. But I just want to like, go a little deeper. I want to take a crack at this parable and uh, tell you what's been speaking to me. Here's what I think. As I read this story and as I reread this story, it feels to me, like to use our language, it feels like this manager has a Kairos moment. As a Kairos moment, like, like something suddenly gets his attention in a very profound way, um, something gets his attention and it turns his head and he leans in. He has a Kairos moment through the accusation of money mismanagement, which was probably a true accusation. Um, you know, he he has this this moment of of reality. He's through being called into account. This man discovers sudden clarity he has this sudden realization that, oh my gosh, time is short. Time is short. You know, these things that I once thought were important, they're really not important. They're not as important as I thought they were. Things like money and the accumulation of wealth, they're not as important as I thought they were. Up to this moment, it feels like this, this manager's orientation in life pursuit was the accumulation of wealth. And now all that is about to be taken away. And he has a kairos moment. And he does something about it. So knowing that time is short. He takes stock of everything that he has control over. Which in this case is his master's wealth and possessions. And he leverages it to endear people to himself. He leverages what he has to play with. To grow relationships. So that later he will be welcomed into their homes. He takes intentional, deliberate action now to ensure that he has a place later. That when the time is up and everything's gone, he will have a place. To me, this is what's going on in this story. And there's lots of things going on in this parable. But to me, this is a primary thing happening in this man's life, in this story. His value system gets turned upside down. His value system gets turned upside down, which is a theme in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is all about reminding people the counterintuitive, countercultural nature of the kingdom of God. At the beginning of the story, we're presented with a man who's operating or orienting around the world's value system. And by the end of the story, he discovers a new, better value system. Sort of like the beer sign guy. He started out with this value in mind, and then suddenly he has a kairos moment like, oh my, like this should be used for much better things. You know, he has this kairos moment. This manager experiences a change of thinking, which leads to a change of living. In the Bible, that's called repentance. When you have a change of thinking that leads to a change of living, that's called repentance. And when you start to live your life out of that new way of thinking, that's called belief. He repents and he believes. He discovers that money's value is only as great as the relationships that are behind it. So he turns from a fixation on money and instead he turns towards the pursuit of relationships he actually leverages the lesser thing for the greater thing. And and I couldn't help but be reminded as I thought about that and as I I dove into this story, that that sort of reminds me of what what we've talked about before around here, though it's probably been a while, like the five capitals. Remember the five capitals? We actually did a series on it a few years ago. The five capitals. and, And by capital, here's what I mean. The investable assets that we all have in our possession to invest the investable assets that every single person has ownership of to leverage somehow some way in life so there's the five capitals and when it comes to the five capitals I mean they're they're sort of general I mean you could probably think of other things that maybe become subcategories or you know but 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 there's five general capitals that all of us in our lives have to play with, to work with in our lives. And and there's an order that the world values these things in, and there's an order that the the king of kings and the lord of lords values these things in. So just to kind of name them, and and just to give a little note of explanation for each one. Um, Financial capital, that refers to the treasure that all of us have to invest and in, in the commodity of financial capital is, is money. Intellectual capital, that refers to the knowledge that we have, that's acquired, and the amount of creativity and I- ideas that we have to invest. The currency of intellectual capital is the insights and ideas and information and the application of those things. Physical capital refers to the time and the energy that we all have to invest in both people and projects. The currency of physical capital is ours in health. Relational capital. That refers to the quantity and the quality of our relationships with others. And the currency of relational capital is family and friends. And then there's spiritual capital. Spiritual capital refers to the depth of our relationship with God as a disciple of Jesus. And the currency of spiritual capital is the wisdom and the power that we experience, you know, through relationship with God. Now here's the thing I just want to make sure it's crystal clear before I go any further. All of these capitals are good. None of these capitals are bad. They're all good things. It's not wrong to have any of these. It's not wrong to have an abundance of these. But, it does matter the, the order of priority or value we put on these capitals that, that we have in our possession. So so back to the story, you know. Sure, you know. You know. But before I move on to the story, like like just here's what I want to suggest: that the world is set up in such a way that um, it, ori- it it tries to orient us around the pursuit of financial capitals as the most important thing we could ever accumulate in our lives you know, followed by, like, being, you know, smart and bright and having all kinds of cool ideas and, you know, having, like, good physical capital and and relational and spiritual sort of lag behind. In the kingdom of God, the orientation is more, the the most valuable capital you could possess is spiritual capital followed by relational capital, then physical capital, then intellectual, then financial. There's a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. So back to the story. Sure. I get it. It's, it his transformation is, does seem to be born out of selfish motives and self-preservation. But the manager in this story, the steward, he does experience an awakening, a, a reorientation, a, a flip-flop um, of what really matters in his life of what is truly important in life, of what truly is worth investing in in life. He has a change of thinking and he acts on it with urgency. He repents and he believes and he turns his life in a new direction. And that, I think more than anything else in the parable, is what the master commends, is that change of heart, that change of mind that change of orientation. I don't think Jesus is necessarily commending you know, dishonest practices as a way of gaining you know, the greater things. I think what, what, he's, what he's zooming in on and highlighting is this manager had a change of orientation, had a change of perspective. And Jesus, you know, and, and he calls him shrewd. He calls him wise. That's what the translation of shrewd would be. This is a wise man. And Jesus comments on this story. He makes this comparison, doesn't he? Did you catch that? He says, man, if the children of this world who, who aren't believers, if they can arrive at such a conclusion, how much more should the children of light be living this way? If the people of this world are capable of doing the right thing for the wrong reasons... God's people should be the first people to do the right things for the right reasons. Spiritual capital, relational capital are the greatest things in the kingdom of God. Think about the great commandment and the second greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Spiritual capital, relational capital. Those are the top pursuits in the kingdom of God. Elsewhere, in Matthew 6.33, do you remember these words of Jesus? It says, seek first the kingdom of God. Put the kingdom of God at the top of the list. Put spiritual capital at the top of the list. And all these other things, they have a way of working themselves out. They have a way of falling into place. So, I think I can't help but be confronted with the question in my own life this morning, and maybe this is a question for you to reflect on as well, whose kingdom are you living for? What capital is the joy, the delight, the pursuit of your life? When we claim to be for God's kingdom, yet we orient our lives around the world's kingdom, that only leads to trouble because Jesus continues, doesn't he, in this story. Let me read a few more verses. Right after he says you know what he said earlier, then Jesus says this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, no one will trust you with true riches. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Then this, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he kind of summarizes everything he's trying to say. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is saying we have to choose. We all have a choice. Which will it be? One or the other? You can't serve both. Choose wisely. God isn't happy when we go after the lesser capital, Instead of the higher capital, when we orient our lives around the pursuit of the lesser capital, when we leverage relationships to gain financial abundance. I mean, did you read in Amos this week in the Bible reading plan? He has some words of judgment to his people in the book of Amos about how they're eager to get back to taking advantage of the poor and the needy in order to profit off them. God remembers such things and he has words to his people about such things. I mean, we we can't deny it, can we? Jesus, he talks a lot about money. He understands the the grip that it can have on us. The master, let's just break this parable down, the characters. The master in this parable is God. You're not the master. I'm not the master. God is the master in this parable. We are the stewards or the managers. Let me just ask you this question as, as we get ready to kind of draw this to a close. Do you view, is that how you view yourself? Do you view yourself as a steward or a manager of all the master's capitals that he's put at your disposal? Think We're not only entrusted with the vision of the kingdom of God, the king entrusts us with his treasures. He entrusts us with his treasures to steward and leverage for the greater things. To me, that, that's why for me, and I hope for you, that, that giving is such an important discipline in my life. It's such an important practice in my life because it helps remind me of whose this is. It's not mine. I'm just a steward of the king's treasures that he's blessed me with at this point in my life. And I need to steward it faithfully. And I need to leverage it for the greater things. That's why for me, like, I've got it set up where every Friday, X amount comes out of my checking account no matter what. No matter what's going on in my life financially, no matter how, you know... How, how lean or abundant things are, like X amount goes out every Friday as a discipline, as a practice, as a way of um, disciplining myself to, to remind myself of whose treasures these are. They're not mine. They're the master's. And they're mine to steward. And I'd encourage you, like if, if you don't have some sort of discipline or practice set up, like, that's good for you. God, it, it's a practice God expects from us. as a a way of managing his resources. What's that look like for you? Jesus says this, says this in Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. The kingdom of God, you guys, comes with commodities it, it comes with capitals and there's an investment strategy that comes with them Jesus' desire is that we invest and leverage the lesser capitals for the greater capitals and to steward the lesser capitals with the wisdom and perspective of the greater ones so so which which describes the orientation of your life I'm invite the band to come on up we're going to close out with a song but I just want to invite you before we sing one more song to just look at this list again and to be really honest in your life. Which list reflects the orientation and the pursuit of my life right now? No matter how much you have, what is the capital you're seeking to go after? What is the capital you're orienting your life around? I love it when I hear stories of victory pointers opening up their homes to people, whether that be a missional community or neighbors or others, because to me, that's an expression of leveraging the lower capitals for the pursuit and the growth of the higher capitals. Relationships and spiritual capital. I love it when I hear stories like that. But I just want to remind us, God, the word of God, and the souls of people, those are the only three things that last for eternity. To the extent that you are investing in those things that's the extent that you're investing in eternity I think what this parable teaches us is time is limited our time on this earth is really teeny compared to eternity time is finite the master's resources are infinite and abundant Someday we're going to have to give an account of our stewardship of the king's treasures in our lives. So when everything's gone, and it all goes back into the box, and we go back into the box, will it be said of us, will it be said of this church that we invested all that we had been given in such a way so that we are welcomed into eternal dwellings. May that be said of us. Pray with me, please. Jesus, thank you for weird stories, strange stories, because they really do have heavenly implications and meanings. Thank you for this reminder of the kingdom's value system and this opportunity to reflect on my living by it or not most of all jesus i thank you that you gave all of your physical capital your life to purchase for us relational capital with the king and with the father That you invested all of your physical capital, you gave your life to restore us into spiritual relationship with the Father. Thank you for that picture of what really matters and what's truly important. May we become a people who pattern our lives after yours, constantly seeking to leverage, to invest the lesser things for the greater things may that be the the mark in the story of our lives in Jesus name amen and let's sing one more song